Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America, the greatest podcast in American history. My name is Dylan Shear, and I am your host on this journey through American history since the Civil War. Uh, today, we only have six episodes left, uh, including today's episode, uh, at least in this first part of this podcast project. Today's episode is on the Vietnam War and sort of the failures of the Cold War policy that led to the Vietnam War. So, Keep listening here. I'm still, you know, thinking about how the how that if I'm going to do sort of the first half of American history, uh, but for now we'll focus on Vietnam. So um, today's episode is going to cover a couple of things, as these episodes always do. Uh, we'll talk about the road to Vietnam, right? Sort of uh, the war itself, what it looked like, uh, the anti-war movement, and then the end of the war. We've talked about some of these things sort of obliquely in the last couple of podcast episodes, but today we're really going to focus on them. So along with that. Uh, some major questions for this episode, as we usually get. Uh, how did anti-communism affect the Vietnam War, right? We've talked a lot about this and sort of one of the overriding ideas of this last third of the podcast series uh, since, you know, the end of the end of World War II is how is anti-communism and how is this sort of anti-communist ideals affecting things in the United States, right? We looked at how anti-communism affected the civil rights movement. Uh, how it affected, you know, foreign policy. And today we're going to look at how it affected the buildup to the Vietnam War. Uh, we're also sort of one big question this uh, is asking is, did the Vietnam War change the U.S. policies of containment? Uh, we'll see some of the answers to that. And then we'll also look at how the Vietnam War affected sort of domestic politics in the United States, right? Sort of it's, you know, a lot of times people try to separate foreign politics and domestic politics. And I do that here a little bit, but uh, they are sort of different things. Um, we're going to look at two things today, uh, two people in our little biography section. The first guy is Nguyen Van Lem. I'm 100% sure I'm uh, pronouncing that wrong, so I apologize. Uh, he was a soldier in the Viet Cong, sort of the famous uh, image, you sort of seen this, of uh, a man uh, shooting uh, a prisoner sort of point blank, right, that won the Pulitzer Prize, one of these big images to come out of the Vietnam War. Uh, he is the man who is being shot in, in that photo. Uh, he was executed in Saigon during the Tet Offensive by a South Vietnamese general, so he's North Vietnamese, uh, and we'll talk about the Tet Offensive here. Um, he was alleged to have to have murdered a lieutenant colonel during the war, but multiple historians have asserted that this story was being inve- was invented after the war, right? So sort of this just was a point blank a murder of, of Van Lam. The photo of, of this murder won a Pulitzer and spurred even more anti-war protests. Uh, and the photo was taken by Eddie Adams. And then our second person we're talking about today uh, is Muhammad Ali, considered by many to be the greatest boxer of all time, uh, who refused to fight in, in the Vietnam War, right? And he said, you know, my conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or, or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud for big, powerful America and shoot them for what, right? How can I shoot them? Poor people just take me to jail. Uh, as a result of his refusal to fight in the Vietnam War, right, um, was banned from boxing, uh, continued to do other activities like, uh, you know, go to college campuses and lectures to publish autobiography, uh, to start a Broadway musical. But he was also sort of under trial, uh, right, for this refusal to join the draft. Uh, and this trial went all the way to the Supreme Court. And then on 1968, August 30th, the Justice Department admitted that it had been uh, wiretapping uh, MLK and other persons involved in sort of the freedom movement and had heard uh 
Ali on calls for that, and that's where some of their evidence had come from. So the Supreme Court uh, sort of went back and remanded the case down to a lower court to determine if those wiretaps were illegal. Uh, so Ali was kept out of prison for a while, but still sort of uh, not allowed to box. Um, eventually, um, both the district court and the appellate court uh, that were reviewing Ali's case ruled um that they the wiretaps were made in connections uh they weren't about Ali and sort of did not result in um in the sort of unfair treatment uh in Muhammad's Muhammad Ali's case but they went back to the Supreme Court where in 1971 right so 3 years you know later after the original uh, Supreme Court date the the court declared uh that Muhammad Ali was a legitimate conscientious objector sort of forbidden to fight uh by his religious practice. Um, and so he was allowed to return to boxing after that. Uh, though still some people saw him as sort of like a betrayer of America, even though he's sort of standing up for what he believed in. And that's sort of how people see him today. Okay. So just some of the two important people involved in Vietnam, uh, not all people, you know, always think about Muhammad Ali in connection to the Vietnam war, but that was very much a part of who he was. Okay. The road to, to Vietnam war. So how did this war get started? Uh, so we have to go back a ways into the colonial history. Uh, Vietnam had been part of what was called French Indochina for most of the 20th century, right? This French colonial possession, awful sort of, you know, colonial possession here, similar to the British Raj in India, right? Uh, after World War II, Vietnam fought for its independence. This independence movement was led by Ho Chi Minh. Uh, Ho Chi Minh uh, was a communist uh, looking to China and Russia for help. There, you know, there's a famous story that gets passed around a lot that Ho Chi Minh was present at the Treaty of Versailles and he sort of like worshipped, you know, Wilson, right? Thought he was, thought Wilson was great. Sort of Wilson, you know, preaching about democracy and independence for these countries. New evidence sort of has come to light that Ho Chi Minh was at the Treaty of Versailles, but he probably already at that point had gone past the sort of Wilsonian democracy, Wilsonian internationalism stuff uh, and was there sort of uh, more just to see this big world event, right? And perhaps try to get some, you know, communists, uh, talk to other communists who who were there. So, so yeah, uh, as part of the independence movement, Min um, was, you know, looking to China and Russia for help. Uh, at first in this, uh, the U.S. was supporting French efforts to resist this uh, independence movement, right? First giving the French money. Uh, and then eventually helping them with military advisors. Military advisors uh, is sort of can mean a lot of different things. In this case, it meant that they actually helped with you know boots on the ground uh, in some cases. But sort of the Vietnamese forces uh, routed the French forces, even with American American help. In 1954, at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, uh, the Vietnamese routed French forces, uh, really just sort of destroyed them. The French weren't used to fighting uh, on this, you know, the Vietnamese terrain. Uh, they didn't have the sort of the ability. The, French, the Vietnamese like knew the area 100%, completely knew everywhere to go, and the French didn't. Uh, so they're absolutely routed, even with America American help. Uh, but before uh, Ho Chi Minh could reunite um, North uh, Vietnam and South Vietnam, which was South Vietnam was still sort of nominally controlled by the French, uh, the U.S. stepped in even more so than it had before. Uh, Vietnam traditionally had been sort of one country, right, uh, taken over by this colonial power, and so sort of, uh, Ho Chi Minh wanted to reunite it, but was sort of stopped. Uh, the U.S. began propping up uh, an anti-communist and pro-U.S. leader, Ngo Dien Dem, um, and sort of as a result of this, they proposed to hold elections in 1956, right? So the U.S. presence in Vietnam had gone back quite a ways, 
uh, much before the actual sort of what we consider the war was started, but the U.S. was there for a long time. Uh, it quickly became apparent that even if the U.S. did hold, the U.S. held free and fair elections, that men would win the election in a landslide. He was hugely popular in both uh, in all all across Vietnam. So the U.S., as they were wont to do, canceled the elections. Right? You know, we're supposed to be this big democracy here, loving elections, uh, the will of the people. But if they don't go our way, immediately cancel them. Uh, the U.S. worked to keep Diem in power. And this was sort of part of this containment strategy, right? This Cold War idea that uh, containment needed to be, uh, sort of containment policy was the way forward, that sort of, you know, if we stopped communism from spreading, it wouldn't go to other places. And if we let it spread, then it would just keep, 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 keep spreading. Uh, and so as part of this containment policy, by 1961, the U.S. has spent more than $40 million to fund South Vietnamese police and commandos, right? All in the name of keeping Diem, this pro-capitalist guy, in power. Diem absolutely was hated by a lot of people. So this awful leader did not know what he was doing, but he was pro-U.S. and so was kept in power. The, the North Vietnamese didn't give up. Uh, South Vietnamese forces were constantly fighting the Viet Cong, who, and this sort of make this clear, the Viet Cong were an independent guerrilla army, though they were often allied with North Vietnamese forces, which were led by Ho Chi Minh, right? Sort of, and that break can sometimes uh, disappear, uh, but sort of, uh, you know, at this point, especially the Viet Cong were an independent guerrilla army fighting mostly in uh, South Vietnam, not specifically part of the North Vietnamese army. Okay, uh, so after... After his election, uh, right, sort of uh, Kennedy, uh, then, you know, the sort of the U.S. involvement uh, was happening uh, before Kennedy was elected. But after his election, Kennedy sort of as part of his, you know, Cold Warrior idea, right, sort of his idea that he was this big Cold Warrior guy. Uh, Kennedy increased U.S. military presence in South Vietnam from 5,000 people to 16,000 people, 16,700 uh, people, sort of, you know, to increase his, like, Cold War prestige, right, to show that he was this big Cold Warrior. Uh, DM, who was a Catholic, um, started a massive campaign of repression against the Buddhist majority of Vietnam, right, sort of awful crackdowns on Buddhism, trying to uh, just basically, like, repress any Buddhist celebrations, Buddhist worshipped in, in Vietnam. This led to a, a huge outbreak of protests, including several self-immolations, right, those famous photos of Buddhist monks uh, setting themselves on fire are from this time, right, protests against DM's treatment of Buddhists. Um, the U.S. stepped in, right? They Even this was too far for the U.S. Uh, and Henry Cabot Lodge, who was an uh, ambassador at that time, he had been a senator. He actually lost his Senate seat to JFK, uh, but it was now working uh, underneath JFK. Went to, went to Vietnam as an ambassador uh, and sort of basically, used, uh, with, along with the CIA, funded a coup against DM. Uh, Cabot Lodge Jr. giving money and support uh, to this group of generals who overthrew DM. It was, cost him $42,000, which is sort of a pretty low amount. I have to double check that. Uh, DM was executed as a result of that coup, but this only made Vietnam more unstable. Right, and there's we actually have tapes of Kennedy talking about this coup. There's one from October 29th, 1963, sort of a very high level White House meeting immediately prior to this coup, including the president's brother was there, uh, voicing doubts about the policy for this coup. And he says, I mean, it's different from a coup in the Iraq or South American country. We're so intimately involved in this, right? So, like, sort of against it, but then also in a very way that's very derogatory and very, you know. Not good in a lot of other ways. Uh, so after Kennedy gets assassinated, sort of LBJ inherits uh, this uh, the Vietnam sort of issue, right? Um, 
He took office in 1963. LBJ wasn't sure at first if he should commit more troops uh, and money to Vietnam. He didn't really want a lengthy war that would sort of drain resources from his Great Society program, right? The Great Society program was supposed to be his big way to end poverty in the United States. Uh, But in the end, sort of the pressures of the Cold War, the pressures of anti-communism, right, the need to be seen as being anti-communist, the containment policy that was such a big part of of United States foreign policy, led him to commit more troops and marring America in a war that would cost millions of lives and billions of dollars. I'm sort of framing this as if he had no choice, right? He did have a choice not to do this. There was a lot of pressure on him to do that, but in the end, sort of LBJ did make that choice. There's one sort of one big major problem that the U.S. faced in Vietnam, and I think a big reason why behind a big reason behind why the U.S. was so unsuccessful in Vietnam. Uh, as a result of the Red Scare, most of its experts on Southeast Asia had been purged from the State Department and other departments in the United States. Uh, precisely because they were experts on Southeast Asia, they were seen as being sort of susceptible to being communists. And so that meant that there were very, very few people in the U.S. government who actually like knew what was going on there, and they had lost so many sort of experts on the region that they were really handicapped in what they could do and what they uh, could figure out to do. Uh, so the Tonkin Gulf incident is really what pushes the U.S. sort of into a full-fledged war, right? 16,000 troops is a lot of people there, but it's nowhere near the heights of how many troops were in Vietnam by the end of it. Uh, so the Tonkin Gulf incident sort of pushes those numbers higher. On August 2nd, 1964, the U.S. Maddox, which was a spy ship, uh, for the U S uh, was participating in South Vietnamese raids on North Vietnam, right? Uh, it, they destroyed two North Vietnamese torpedoes and took no damage. Um, so remember this is a U.S. spy ship going into, you know, waters that are not its own, right. And gets fired on and it destroyed two torpedoes. Two days later, the Maddox returned to the same spot and reported being fired upon again Uh, in response to this. They fired on North Vietnamese ships and called for air support. The thing that we know now is that second attack, the two days later one, did not happen. Uh, It's sort of unclear at this point. Uh, Either it was a mistake by the people on the ship or it was sort of a deliberate attempt to fully involve the U.S. in the war. Um, Either way, it worked. Uh, Johnson knew the attack hadn't happened. This wasn't something that was discovered, you know, decades later or something. He knew it pretty much right away. But regardless of this, he asked Congress for more power in the war, right? So remember, it wasn't there was pressures against him, but it also he made this decision knowing full well that this attack hadn't even happened. And remember, attack while the U.S. was in North Vietnamese territory. Uh, only two senators dissented. Uh, both houses, both Congress and House of Representatives, passed the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. This gave Johnson this gave Johnson a wide range of powers to fight in Vietnam, wide range of wide range of war powers to fight in Vietnam without a formal declaration of war. And this is something sort of the U.S. continued to do after Vietnam, right? Sort of you know not really to formally declare war for a while and just sort of give the president uh, you know police powers or whatever they want to call it. So um, you. 
U.S. increased its involvement in Vietnam greatly. Johnson used his basically blank check powers almost immediately. By May, March 1965, the U.S. he had authorized bombing campaigns and increased forces in Vietnam to 80,000 people. So it's up from 16,000 in just a couple of months. He started a strategy that, uh, one, attempted to destroy the Viet Cong, and two, attempted to uh, destroy North Vietnamese forces without aggravating China or the Soviet Union. If you look at a map, right, Vietnam is very close to China and very close to the Soviet Union. Uh, and so Lyndon B. Johnson wanted to keep the fighting contained to that area. Uh, Soviets, uh, for their part, provi- provided Vietnam with military support uh, as well during this war. So the fighting in Vietnam was very different than, say, the fighting in Korea or the fighting in World War II. It quickly became a war of attrition. Uh, basically, the U.S. began counting success by not by territory gained, but by how many people were killed, right? And that should just sound awful. It sounds awful to me, at least. Um, I mean, all war, sort of in general, but sort of fighting not over land or anything, but just trying to kill as many people as they possibly could. Uh, they didn't keep the war contained to Vietnam. They also began secret bombing campaigns of Laos and Cambodia. This was a project spearheaded by uh, Henry Kissinger. It was uh, an attempt to destroy the Ho Chi Minh sort of trail, which was used by the North Vietnamese to supply the Viet Cong, uh, but still killed, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of civilians. Uh, This plan, Henry Kissinger's plan, was not successful, killed many civilians, and uh, many of the landmines that the U.S. planted there continued to kill people to this day. There are still about 80 million unexploded U.S. bombs in uh, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, oftentimes in farms and just sort of other areas. People die and get mutilated by them uh, all the time. There are groups that are working to get rid of all of them, but the going is slow as it's very expensive and very dangerous work. Uh, sort of one more recent film that talks that goes into this is Defy Bloods, uh, Spike Lee's movie about World War about Vietnam vets returning there. Um, but there's lots of stuff about this online. Just sort of awful, awful uh, war crimes committed by by the United States. In the end, this bombing campaign, the U.S. ended up actually dropping more bombs in Laos than it did in Vietnam. Right, so this fighting was not just contained to Vietnam uh, alone. I mean, alone that would be bad, but it was also into all these other countries as well. The U.S. also, in its fighting, used chemicals like Agent Orange. Uh, to defoliate the forests, right? To basically just destroy these forests. This Agent Orange also poisoned civilians and American soldiers alike. Uh, the U.S. Army knew that this could happen and yet still went forward with this campaign. Or at least there was evidence that Agent Orange was hurting its own people. Uh, the U.S. also eventually started leading what were called search and destroy missions. Uh, they would use scouts to fight enemy forces and would then call in bombers to destroy uh, this type to destroy uh, sort of those enemy forces. Very, very different fighting, right? The soldiers were very unused to this type of fighting, sort of not, you know, this close combat, at least. They were just sort of felt like they were just calling in missile strikes on people they couldn't see. Uh, and became very bored very quickly. Uh, they often turned to drugs and drinking. And it wasn't just boredom. People often had very big moral qualms with this. Uh, and a result to also turn to drugs and drinking. Drug usage was through the roof uh, in Vietnam. The psychological toll of the fighting in Vietnam was just horrible. Morale quickly, quickly fell among the soldiers. Uh, and sort of, as I said, the psychological toll was really, really high. Uh, many U.S. troops were poor, uh, both black and white. Middle and upper class men were able to get college deferments 
or bribe their way out of the draft, right? It's pretty easy to bribe um, these draft officials, uh, give them, you know, statuses. Trump, for example, got out because of like bone spurs in his feet or something. I forget the exact reason. Do not want to get sued by him. Uh, It's, you know, unproven if he bribes somebody. But there are sort of very lots of officials in the United States who got out with odd medical deferments. Um, You can look those up. I'm not saying that they bribe their way out, but Uh, that bribing did happen. As a result of this, um, many of the soldiers in Vietnam sort of started to wonder what they really were fighting for, right? Why are we fighting this country? That's not even attacking us. Uh, They just want their independence. We're fighting all the way across the country in this awful, awful war. What are we doing here? Uh, Sort of the chemicals, the tactics that were being used, the weapons that uh, were being used uh, caused untold amounts of harm to many of the soldiers who sort of continued to bear those scars of the war, right? Some of the Agent Orange stuff wasn't found out till later um, by a lot of the soldiers, but a lot of, you know, these massive, massive explosions really close to them, sort of PTSD becomes a big... uh, becomes a new diagnosis from this time, right? You can actually see a lot of this uh, in many pieces of media released during and following the war. Things like the deer hunter, the things they carry, Alice's Restaurant, Rambo Apocalypse Now, right? All look at Vietnam as sort of just harrowing experience for the people there, hurting, you know, everybody more more than it should. Uh, so despite its struggles, uh, many U.S. officials thought that the, by late 1967, the war was basically over. Uh, they were very, very wrong on that. On January 30th, 1968, during the Lunar New Year celebrations, North Vietnamese forces and Viet Cong forces launched a massive combined campaign on South Vietnam. At one point, they entered the U.S. Embassy in Saigon, uh, though they were eventually driven out. You know, in their counteroffensive, the U.S. eventually would drive the Viet Cong out of South Vietnam, uh, and the guerrilla forces would never fully recover, but the war was still far from over. So while the U.S. had sort of survived that onslaught, it met, left many in the U.S. sort of convinced that the war was unwinnable, right? That this war of attrition could never really be won when you're fighting these sort of built-in guerrilla forces. Uh, and criticism of the war, which had been brewing for a, a long time in the United States, right? Last week's podcast talked about SDS and the Black Power Movement, all which were sort of lightly criticizing. Uh, and the Vietnam War began to criticize it more and more. Uh, television became one of the biggest conduits for this criticism, largely because for the first time, really, the Americans at home were seeing the awful brutality of war like directly in their own homes. Images of the Korean War and of World War II have been broadcast, but those have been pretty heavily edited, highly sanitized uh, versions. But Vietnam, uh, media companies started embedding people with actual military forces and then doing reportage of their own. Uh, and this sort of awful, awful images were coming into people's homes. People were seeing them for the first time, sort of this real devastation of war. Uh, and so on March 31st, 1968, LBJ called for peace talks, which began in Paris that year uh, and reduced the bombing campaigns on Vietnam. LBJ also withdrew from running for a second term of office, uh, in part to focus on these peace efforts. Uh, despite this drawdown, the U.S. would remain in Vietnam until 1975, right? So still, there are going to be seven more years of war at this point. Uh, so looking at sort of the Vietnam War at home, right, what was going on in America, um, in 1965, there was a draft instituted, which increased criticism of the war. Uh, you know, there's a famous uh, protest of these draft with a sign that says, get the hell out of Vietnam, and, and then hell, it's helicopters. 
1968, over half a million U.S. troops were in Vietnam. All the new left civil rights groups, a bunch of other left groups were all protested, all protested this increased U.S. involvement in the war. These protests started small, but became bigger and bigger and bigger and became a sort of a large anti-war movement. Uh, anti-war movement uh, protests, anti-war protests became common on college campuses, just like free speech protests have been co- uh, common on college campuses. In March 1965, University of Michigan faculty, so faculty and students, held a series of demonstrations, lectures, and classes all against the war. This became known as a teach-in, and sort of this tactic quickly uh, spread across the country. Protests began to escalate, uh, especially in 1967. You saw a dramatic ex- increase in protests. Uh, pol- you didn't see politicians like Senator William Fulbright of Alabama uh, begin publicly criticizing the war, Fulbright scholarships uh, after William Fulbright. Martin Luther King Jr. began criticizing the war in 1967 as well. Uh, in October 1967, you see the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam known as MOBE, M-O-B-E, uh, led a 100,000-person march from D.C. to the Pentagon, so sort of doing a, a reverse march on Washington, the Pentagon, of course, being where all sort of the DOD facilities are. You see over 500,000 people in America burn their draft cards or move to Canada or Mexico to avoid the draft. Uh, there is some pushback against these protesters, right? Uh, also in 1967, many Americans still believed that the U.S. should try to win this war, right? So still, despite you know some of the evidence piling up of, of the awfulness of this war, people still believe that you know America should fight this war. Uh, people began to push back against the protesters, seeing them as treasonous, right? Letting down the boys abroad, that sort of thing. And in 1970, uh, some construction workers in New York, uh, known as the some construction workers in New York, known as the Hard Hats, attacked anti-war demonstrators. These um, construction workers or Hard Hats were supported by the police. They were also, weirdly, in a lot of ways, uh, trying to rebuke the New York mayor's attempt at affirmative action policies, which we'll talk about in sort of next week's uh, podcast. Uh, Nixon actually invited the Hard Hats to the White House. He had, he had won the, the, the 68 election, which we'll talk about also in, in next week's podcast. Uh, 1968, right? So also a very volatile year in the United States, just like 1967. Uh, both Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy were assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy was shot by Sirhan Sirhan. He was running for president uh, because LBJ had dropped out. He had just won the California primary, this big primary. Uh, then he was shot on June 5th and died on 6th. Osirhan Sirhan was a Palestinian 25-year-old, and uh, he was replaced by Herbert Humphrey in the Democratic election process. Uh, During the 1968 National Democratic Convention in Chicago, the left organized sort of an anti-war protest uh, against sort of around the Democratic Convention. Herbert Humphrey, the Democratic nominee, uh, defeated anti-war planks, right, put them down uh, around... 15,000 demonstrators protested outside this convention. It's a huge, huge amount. Mayor Daley at the time worked with Chicago police uh, to attack the protesters, uh, injuring hundreds, right, sort of causing this mass panic. 
Uh, and this all played out on TV and to a lot of people read as sort of like the Democrats losing control and sort of the anti-war protesters being sort of unreasonable right in their tactics. You also see sort of the rise in 68, 69 of a more militant left. We talked about this a little bit in last week's podcast, uh, but by 1969, SDS, that Students for Democratic Society, this big sort of young youth left movement had dissolved largely due to a split in tactics. Uh, One of those split-offs was the Weather Underground, also known as the Weathermen. Uh, They bombed and burned down buildings on college campuses uh, where research aiding the war effort was occurring. Uh, It's a very anti-war protest. Uh, They also planned what they called Days of Rage in Chicago. Uh, they bombed the Haymarket Memorial, right? The memorial the, the, that was built to the policeman who died in Haymarket. They bombed that a couple of times. Uh, in 1970, three weathermen died after a bomb. They were building exploded. Most of them were never imprisoned uh, because the U.S. was sort of illegally spying on them, right? Doing lots of illegal wiretaps. Uh, the weathermen sort of were very much this like a big cultural figure, but they really weren't effective at all. They ended up being uh, pretty bad in a lot of ways. Uh, they sort of like a lot of them supported like Pol Pot, which is not really good. But sort of they 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 were and they were mostly white, right? Didn't really reach out to to other sort of minority communities. Um, very much sort of like I think pretty ineffective in all, uh, and in some ways even hurt the left. Um, you see some of them like Bill Ayers. I've talked about him before. Uh, became sort of professors and that sort of stuff. A lot of them became academics after they realized they weren't going to really serve jail time. Um, But as groups like the Weathermen, right, these more radical groups increased their presence, so too did sort of conservative groups also increase their presence kind of in response to this. Uh, Nixon in his campaign in 68 argued for uh, the return of quote, 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 unquote, law and order. Uh, This was basically sort of a dog whistle uh, for increased policing of black communities, right? Um, you also see the Young Americans for Freedom emerge as sort of a conservative response to SDS, and this rising conservative movement brought Nixon into the White House in 1969. So Nixon now sort of in control of the U.S. in Vietnam. Um, he actually begins by withdrawing troops from Vietnam, right, after Kennedy and LBJ had increased the number. He sort of withdraws them, uh, and this served to sort of decrease some of the anti-war protests, right? People were like, okay, he's, he's withdrawing troops. We'll, we'll pull back on protests. Nixon called called his plan Vietnamization, continuing the USO. This, what this meant is that the U.S. would continue to fund the war, but the actual fighting would be done mostly by Vietnamese forces. Uh, he also continued the, the secret bombing campaigns in Cambodia and Laos, and also actually sent actual troops into Cambodia in April 1970. Uh, the, this invasion of Cambodia it was not secret. Uh, it sort of reinvigorated the protests against the war. Uh, more than 100,000 protesters marched on Washington, right? So again, this March on Washington tactic. On May 4th, uh, 1970, on May 4th, 1970, uh, National Ohio National Guardsmen killed four Kent State University protesters. Uh, these protesters were protesting, uh, you know, the invasion of Cambodia and the war, and Ohio National Guardsmen shot them at Kent State. In the following days, two more students were killed by police at Jackson State University in Mississippi. Uh, sort of the increased use of police against these protesters, part of Nixon's, you know, quote-unquote law and... Um, order strategy leading to the deaths of these students. Uh, Nixon continued to withdraw U.S. forces in Vietnam, and sort of the the protests continued to dissipate as a result of this. However, um, 
along with this, more and more people across the U.S. began to think of the war as a mistake, right? Despite the, the decrease in protest, more and more people began to think that Vietnam was sort of a mistake by the U.S. Uh, you also see this sort of increased suspicion of government motives and cynicism about the American dream. One of the reasons why this happened and sort of increase of this happening uh, was the My Life Massacre, uh, became public news in 1970, uh, sort of really increasing distrust in the U.S. government. The My Life Massacre um, on March 16th, 1968, a company of American soldiers brutally killed most of the people, including uh, women and children and old men, in the village of My Lai. Uh, just sort of awful, awful. More than 500 people were slaughtered in the massacre. Uh, including uh, young girls and women who were raped and mutilated before being killed. U.S. Army officers covered up the carnage for a year before it was purported in the American uh, press. This sort of sparked a, a storm of outrage, right? The brutality of this massacre sort of really fueled anti-war sentiment, further divided the U.S. over Vietnam. Colin Powell helped hide this up, hide this, hide uh, up my lie. And in his report, he said, although there may be isolated cases of mistreatment of civilians and POWs, he said this is by no means reflects the general attitude throughout the division. He also said sort of um, in direct refutation of this portrayal of, you know, American soldiers committing atrocities, he says, is the fact that the relations between American divisional soldiers, division soldiers and the Vietnamese people are excellent. Sort of a lot of people have said that Powell has uh, participated in the My Life cover-up as a result of this. Uh, uh, Callie, uh, who was part of this, sort of one of the leaders of, of the group, um, was given a life sentence for his role in directing the killings at My Lai. Uh, many just saw him as a scapegoat, though, and his sentence was reduced to 20 years upon repeal and later to 10, and he was paroled in 1974. Uh, right, so did not receive a lot of punishment for this. Uh, sort of the guy who directed uh, the My Lai massacres. Uh, and only furthering uh, distrust of the American government in June 1971, the Pentagon Papers were re published revealing that the media and government had lied about major events of the war, right? Covering up all the stuff that had happened, not telling the American people, the media and the government working hand in hand to sort of lie to the U.S., uh, People, a uh, sort of big, big reveal. Uh, so the war ends eventually in January 1973. A treaty was signed with North, North Vietnam to end the war. The last U.S. troops left in March 1975. Uh, the Viet Cong soon reunited Vietnam under communist control almost immediately. Over 3 million Vietnamese died in the fighting and over 58,000 Americans died. So some consequences of the war. Uh, the war sort of exposed even more uh, already uh, the massive disparity in the United States, sort of showing even more what the you know freedom movement and what the student movements had already shown. Uh, you also see a resurgence of the white power movement after Vietnam uh, as it radicalized many of the people who had fought overseas joining white power movements. Uh, you also see sort of a rewriting of the history of Vietnam pretty soon after the war, with people arguing that the U.S. should have won the war, but that they were sold out by military and political leaders, sort of the white power movement pushing this forward a lot. This is known as the lost cause myth. Uh, if you want to learn more about that white power Vietnam connection, I highly recommend the book Bring the War Home by Kathleen Ballou. It really goes into that uh, really well done. So some conclusions here on today's episode. Uh, Vietnam really showed the failures of containment policy, right? That the U.S. really couldn't just go anywhere in the world and do whatever it wanted. 
Uh, it also brought to the fore, even you know, increasing what the freedom movement had already shown in the United States, bringing more to the fore sort of the internal divisions in the United States, right? Sort of the massive disparities in how people think about stuff. Uh, saw the rise of Nixon and conservatives, you know, riding a wave of backlash against the freedom movement, against uh, student protest, uh, bringing those conservatives into office. You also see a in- huge increase in distrust in the government and the media. Okay, that's it for today's episode. Next week, we'll talk about the 70s, going over Nixon's presidency a little bit more in depth, as well as the rise of conservatives um, throughout the United States, uh, like Phyllis Schlafly, the the worst person alive. Okay, that's it, uh, and have a great rest of your day.